1: Good afternoon, this is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Protecting coasts and oceans have multiple benefits for the environment, economy, society and culture. And in line with that, Malaysia is working hard to increase its Biodiversity-Rich Coastal and Marine Protected Areas or MPAs by 2025. To date, Malaysia has protected only about 5% of its ocean area but the goal is to double that to protect at least 10% of its total land and marine areas in line with the National Biodiversity Policy and the International Convention on biological diversity, to which Malaysia is a signatory. So how do we get there? What roles do traditional knowledge and culture play in all of this? So today on the show, I'm going to discuss all of this and more with Dr. Jarina Muhammad jani She's a biocultural conservationist at the University of Malaysia, Trangganu. And also joining us today, Wong Siu Lin, the co-founder of Makaranga, who has written a series of articles on these very topics under Makaranga's year-long series on marine issues called SeaWorld. Welcome, ladies. How are you today? But good, good. How are you, Julian? I'm very well, thank you. So lovely to have you uh, both on the show with me today. So, Julian, maybe I can start off with you, you know, just to sort of get a, a gauge of what this series was all about, right? So, uh, it's called Sea World, of course. Uh, and what exactly were you exploring through this uh, series of uh, articles? A whole year-long process, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, it uh well we yeah, we, we spent many months working on this and the idea really is to cover the marine realm, which is very, very underreported in Malaysia and even on Makaranga. Uh, you know, we, we have focused quite a lot on forest issues. And so we thought, uh, you know, let's get into marine issues. Uh, and so we, we basically looked at three areas. We looked at, uh, management. And in this case, I looked at marine protected areas, which, um, I'm using as a broad term to cover the protection of marine as well as coasts mm-hmm. in uh, Malaysia. Uh, the other area we looked at was knowledge because, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the something that people don't really think about the loss of, uh, coasts as well as marine resources actually impacts uh, the related knowledge to that. Mm-hmm. And the third area I had looked at earlier on in the year
1: was on climate climate impacts. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that also covered, uh, you know, coral reefs, mangroves, and seagrasses. Right? How they're sort of a formidable natural barrier against sort of climate change impacts and things like that. Yeah,
2: that's right. And and also the need to if they occur in the same area, uh, protect all of them together. It just makes it even stronger.
1: Okay. And so I want to, so today we're focusing on two particular articles, right? Uh, so the, those were, I, I mean, I love the titles, One, One Thousand and One Ways to Protect the Ocean and the other one, which is my particular favourite, of course, Grandfather Stories Can Save Our Seas. Um, so in One Thousand and One Ways to Protect the Ocean, right? Um, you know, you wrote about how protecting coasts and oceans, multiple benefits for the environment, uh, so economy, society, culture, all of that that I mentioned earlier. Uh, as we also spoke about, a lot of focus at the start about marine protected areas. Do you want to just, either of you actually can take this, talk to me about, you know, uh, what that is exactly for anyone unfamiliar and also their role in conserving ocean biodiversity. Uh, Dr. Jarina, maybe you want to take that one?
0: Yeah, I think um, I would like to start by... um I, I like to start with stories because I'm not yet a grandmother, but I am just like that. Uh, <laughs> I love the stories. Go okay. for it. I, I remember when I came back from my PhD and uh, I was in a, in a discussion for, for on oceanography and oceanography, and I was basically talking about social oceanography. And I remember one of my closest friends then, he was so angry the fact that I actually uh, proposed this idea, Sharina. You are my good friend, but I will never talk to you again if you keep going on with the social oceanography. There's only four elements in oceanography. And social is definitely not in uh, among uh, the four. So uh-huh. it was like, really, you know, because it's a typical scientist. Because it's true if you're an oceanographer, you have... They have what? They have biological oceanography. They have uh, physical oceanography. They have even uh, what they call the... Um, uh, what they call the... Uh, I think uh, uh, atmospheric, whatever, the one that is from the sky. Uh, and then they have chemical oceanography. So there's no social, social oceanography there, but I was trying, trying to make them understand that the sea is not void of people, that we've always, it's the largest, you know, largest ecosystem in the world, you know, the sea. I mean, it's like 70% water. And obviously, we've been here for a long time. Obviously, we've interacted with it. It's just that we don't, we are not uh, uh, Atlantans. If We do not, people, but Atlantis doesn't mean that we're not part of the sea. So it was like, and then what was great about it, because he's such a good researcher, he started, because he couldn't, you know, couldn't accept, he started reading, <laughs> and he found, and he contacted me later, Jarina and Oya Oncology, uh, it is recognised that ocean is a social space,
1: mm. right? And
0: that's where people are only, can you imagine, it's only beginning to 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 unravel to people that we realise that the sea is part of us, And I think this is why it's very important uh, why this series is so valuable and that's why this, for example, the Grandfather's uh, father Stories relates to that because they grandfathers and this is coming especially from traditional uh, knowledge uh, of uh, communities living by the sea, especially indigenous people because they are basically the custodians of old knowledge, right? It really, really uh, reflects the old connection that we've had with the sea and so I think that's that's why I want to start why this is so valuable because I think simply because now we don't depend on the sea we don't think it's part of the sea or well, uh, that we, we we belong to the space but it is actually a very important uh, and we have a lot that uh, our culture the way we behave the way we see things is related even the the word that we use every day uh, a lot of that is actually connected to uh, our to to the sea actually. Mm. so yeah I just want to start with that story and uh and yeah um, yeah, I mean, that's what is very important for the society. We are also part of the
2: Definitely. Yeah, I think that's, that's something that uh, has always interested me in terms of like nature documentaries, right? I think I know uh, Western <laughs> companies, documentary makers, tend to focus on the nature and then they, they pull all the people out of it. Correct. You know? And then I think having grown up with that sort of thing and in fact continuing to watch these sorts of things, the, the human element has always taken out of uh, being part of uh, nature and in this case the ocean and coasts. And, and, then, and then that huge element of how to manage it, how we interact with it, our impacts on it, you know, are gone missing as well. Mm-hmm.
1: And that is the key to protecting it, right, also. And, but, but before we get to all of that, and I do want to focus on that quite a bit. So before that, I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the economic values uh, of these uh, sort of uh, MPAs, right, these marine protected areas. I, you provided some figures in the article, Su you want to just share that, you know, just to give us the context?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I was doing some research on what what's called a blue economy, and that's basically looking at uh, you know the the oceans and coast as well as a way like uh, to continue generating income uh, for countries for states. Uh, as well as for societies. And Malaysia actually has a blue economy position paper and it was produced by the Academy of Sciences Malaysia. Uh, and, and what they are saying is we want to develop these marine and maritime economic sectors, uh, but we want it to be sustainable development. Mm-hmm. So we have to take into consideration uh, the, the sort of biological aspects of it as well as the, the so- so-called economic aspects of it. And basically what the paper has uh, has found out is that these all these sectors in Malaysia are... Valued at 288 billion ringgit. Okay. Uh, and, then, and then what they're saying also is that actually that's not the full potential, the economic value of what the oceans and the coasts can produce. You know, they, they're saying that actually Malaysia has underdeveloped these sectors and they're asking for greater uh development and greater uh notice of uh, you know for Malaysia needs to take more notice of these sectors, they're looking at things like maritime transport, ports related services. They're also looking at ocean ecosystem services and even climate change management. And they're saying that there's money to be made from looking at ways to adapt to and to mitigate climate change.
1: Okay. And one of the high uh, issues that you highlighted as well is that there is actually no one authority overseeing these sorts of protected areas, right? Uh, You want to just quickly explain how that is a problem?
2: Well, it's, it's both a problem as well as an opportunity, and I'll, I'll let Darina actually uh, elucidate on that. And And basically, it is the fact that Malaysia operates on federalism. So we have federal authorities, we also have state authorities, right? And then you have the, the way we, we tend to run things, which is the peninsula, and then we've got Sabah and Sarawak. So we've basically got many, many different ways of uh, managing our natural resources. So, yes, it it can be an issue, as some of the experts I spoke to. In fact, all of the experts that I spoke to, including Jarina, have pointed out. It is an issue because of uh, lack of coordination, uh, whether in terms of laws or whether in terms of management uh, and enforcement. Uh, but there also there's perhaps opportunities as some of the more positive people would try and uh, highlight, you know, opportunities of work working together, of sharing resources, because there's always not enough money to do whether it's, it's to ensure that a protected areas con uh, protected area continues to be protected properly, whether there's enforcement, uh, whether there's research and stuff like that. You know, so there, there are actually also opportunities. But perhaps I can let Jarina uh, weigh in on this as well.
1: Yeah, Dr. Serena, because I was reading, you spoke about the importance, again, you know, going back to what you said earlier, of integrating local communities in ocean management, right? Can you elaborate on that?
0: Okay, the, the problem about the sea is that, uh, and I think it's uh, been uh, captured in the articles that generally people agree that it belongs to no one. It's a public good that is open to all. However, we know that it can I mean, the, the only reason why people keep going there is because there are certain spots that they think belong to them indirectly, right? Mm. And that's how we function as well. Uh, that's why we have protected areas, that's why we have zoning and whatnot, because we're basically putting labels on ba- creating boundaries, right? So, uh, but the problem is, Malaysia I mean, I love the fact that you have all these that the state or even the uh, um, has uh, come in and be part of the governance because I believe that you need people on the ground and back to steel, not just the state doing it, the local communities themselves who actually live there, who depend on this uh, important uh, key ecosystems because usually you protect what is most valuable, right? And they are obviously the ones who benefit. But the problem is, um uh State so federalism, uh, I remember one of the words I like to use you know, in my opinion is that Authoritarian biologists—that <laughs> uh, uh, she was referring to documentaries—because they grew up uh, thinking like that, and Guha actually coined that term. You know, because we have been uh, under the influence of authoritarian biologists who think that their knowledge uh, precedes everything else, right? So, I think a lot of our marine parks, our protected, protected areas, have been like that as well. It's been the focus, the value that they look is first of all biological value, but bio, especially biodiversity right uh, biological biodiversity but they forget that it's only valuable because it means something to us and of course it's uh, and it's some, it means something to us who are not in that area but it means even more to people who's living in that area mm-hmm. so but the only problem is because there's no recognition of this because just looking at it from your statistics for your uh, indexes for Shannon whatever you forget that the one who actually really really Care most or depend most on the, the area that you want to protect are the people who live in vicinity or within this ecosystem, and who better to actually take care of it than people who actually live there, who use it, you know, and would like the children to be able to use it as well. And but the problem is we don't have a system that allows that. Uh, I think Sabah and in a sense, have made. A lot of uh, investment in their law because they have they actually encourage communities to come in to take you know that's that's why you see a lot of NGOs doing their uh, small scale uh, engagement. Even they they have all the tagal system that they're reviving, but in Malaysia, of course, you will hear people talking about tagal, but it's actually for me, I call it fictional. It's just for sure. It is something that you actually impose on the community instead of trying to find out what kind of local governance already exists, even mm-hmm. if it's not so much practice but it, it is part of the community that they know and how do you uh, enhance that? How do you give people, empower people to use this as a way to protect what is most uh, valuable to them? So so for me that's why I would like, I, I like because I basically, um, I am so relieved that basically we have a state park in Tengganu now because we were fighting for a long time and now we have No state park because I believe that it means more to a ranger who is from Trengganu to protect resources in his state than somebody, whether well-meaning or not, who is just positioned there for a couple of years and then goes off mm-hmm. and then come back or whatever. You know? but, but it's different uh, because it is, it, I mean, I think that there is a more sense of ownership as well, that you don't want people to rob you, right? So, so and, and when it comes to local community, it's even more than that. It's about their survival. And it's just that for the longest time, we have basically disconnected communities from governance and people we have been uh, since for the past 40, 50 years, management has been so top down and Malaysians are so uh, accommodating in a sense. We don't, we think, oh, they do it better. So Uh let them do it.
1: These you are know, the so professionals lah, right? yeah.
0: Yes, so we don't say, no, oh, no, we know. And they even, they, they I mean, sometimes they look at how things are done by so-called agencies and they, 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 they snicker and they laugh. They, they know it's, <laughs> it's really, you know, they're not doing it right. But they won't you know, they, because we are non-competitional.
1: So a so sort, sort of problem, thing lah. Mm.
0: Yes, and also especially when it comes to rural areas, they're very polite. They're very, they, they are very accommodating, they don't believe in competition, they don't, you know, they might get very adored when it comes to politics, but when it comes to this kind of thing, they say, okay, because we are not the authority. So I've always said what we need is for the agencies who's governing any of these areas to recognize that these people are basically our best um, assets mm. and that we should capitalize on them and also come to recognize the fact that they probably know better because they go to the sea. For example, the sea. Every day, we go and sample. We researchers have to stop uh, pretending that we know so much because we only get to go as much as our resources, our funding, our the weather allows us. But these people are there much, maybe, you know, like almost every day when the weather permits because it's about their, their livelihood. Yeah. So they have so much to teach us. Yeah. And if we start there, I think we can go then collaboration real collaboration can
1: happen yeah because it's only logical that you know they would do their utmost best to protect something that their lives depend on i mean it's just it's it's so basic as that isn't it and for us to to come in and sort of come with this top down uh, uh sort of measures just doesn't make sense like we're not actually speaking to them and trying to incorporate uh that their, their traditional and local knowledge as well so important isn't it
0: yeah, but, but I do want to do put a caveat there. I sure. mean, I'm not going to be one of those who believe in what they call the noble savages, right? It's not all perfect. Of, yeah, course, of course, I recognize that there's, there's been sometimes they over-harvest and not but most of the time, I mean, I can only speak based on my own research with communities. Most of the time, they only become unsustainable when they're pushed by the market. Mm. Every time, you know, for example, in uh we talk, I can, let, let me speak, of course, again, you, 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 not be surprised, late. Really. I'll talk about sooty wetlands. Sure. <laughs> and of course, in situ, in the lagoons, for example, look at, uh, they harvest all these bivalves and whatnot, and uh, crabs, even even crustaceans. And they tell me, you know, my, my mother would scold me if I brought anything, uh, you know, small, small crabs or whatever. Because you see, you are, this is, or Emily, we say, uh, anaya. This is this is bad. You're doing, you, you are not supposed to harm them. Not even, anaya is, uh, in English, would be, you're
2: not supposed to. Um, uh, it's, it's, I not, it's not harm. It Go, goes to show thing. how bad our uh, Malay is. Yeah, abuse, abuse. Yeah, Naya is abuse, abuse. You are abusing them. Abusing, yeah.
0: Okay. Yes, you're abusing them. So to that extent, so they would never. But now, what happens is, the market buys even the small, tiny, weeny ones, and so so this guy says, you know, can you imagine? I wouldn't do that. But the problem is, if I don't take it, somebody else is going to take it and sell it to the market. So why am I going to throw it back? Because somebody is just going to pick it up again. It's Mm -hmm. better me than the other person. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, the other person is not somebody from that area. It is somebody Mm -hmm. who has driven three, four hours, uh, spent his fuel cost, comes there and wants to maximize his travel. So he will just take everything. And obviously, he comes from a place where this resource does not exist. So it's obviously more uh, valuable Mm -hmm. where he is. So even small ones, people will appreciate because they don't have it at all. So this is what happens. So we do not provide the platform to protect sustainable use locally by opening the market. Anybody can come in and harvest as much as they can. And why would My Fisherman Institute, who's always been sustainable, remain sustainable when they know that somebody Mm -hmm. is going to just take it? So this is what Hardin was talking about in 1968. The tragedy of commons mm. when you really create commons but i don't believe i believe like i said i believe that local communities have always known how to manage uh, resources local resources sustainably but once you make it turn it into a common that is open for all because there is now another issue. because last time your it's your village you say hey you're not from here why you you can't because it is your boundary but now there's is it's, it's, it's we have state boundary we have we can't because there is another authority supposed to be doing that. So when then we don't have, for example, we don't even have any guidelines in Malaysia about the size, capture size for bypass and whatnot, who are they to tell people off? Oh, who mm-hmm. are they to say, hey, you know, my mother would say that's abusive. Why are you to say that? Right, so so, so this is the thing. What, what we would like, I mean, for me, I think what is important is we have to, if they are really first of all, recognize that they know more, they care more, but how do we allow them to continue doing it that way, to continue to be sustainable, to care? Because if we don't, it's unfair for us to expect them to continue to be sustainable and care about the environment when we are exposing them to so many threats and challenges external. So, so for me, I mean, maybe I'm a bit biased because I think I always give them the benefit of the doubt if they do something sustainable, uh, and maybe that's a that's a blind spot for, on my side. But but I, you can use, but based on my own experience researching with cultural communities, that's what has happened. Okay. It's always th- because
2: yeah, day. I. I think for me, it's it's basically you you have knowledge systems already in place and that have been placed in, place in a, uh, for a very long time. But now you know the, the that new perhaps new or broader uh, knowledge systems have come into place and are kind of replacing these traditional uh, uh, knowledge systems. You know, and therefore, uh, what takes precedence? I guess is the other question that I have: is this broader, newer, more modern sort of economic and uh, knowledge? Uh, you know, does it have a higher uh, authority or higher does it take precedence over traditional knowledge systems? You know, and I think that's something that that's always a struggle. Uh, you know, in in management uh, as a whole. I'm assuming uh, your your work with uh, the the marmari, for example, you know, which is which is absolutely fascinating. Is going back to brass tags, and and this is something that uh, uh, if, if if I may talk about this a little bit, um, Juliet. Yeah, uh, that the Department of Fisheries uh, in Malaysia who who manage uh, uh, well basically what they're looking at is they're looking at uh traditional systems again uh you know looking at uh, uh what what Jarina is leading this project on the marmori fishes uh, in terms of what they know about local fisheries uh and it's the first time uh, such a thing is, is is actually happening looking at indigenous knowledge systems yeah. uh, and looking at how that could perhaps go into protection of um what has been traditionally traditionally managed oceans and coasts yeah,
1: yeah. I do want to ask Dr. Jarina about that, but we just need to go for one very quick break and then I'm going to come back and ask Dr. Jarina to uh, expand on, on that uh, particular project that you're working on, okay? I'm speaking today to Dr. Jarina Mohamad-Jani. She's a biocultural conservationist at University of Malaysia Trenganoo and Wong Siu Lin, the co-founder of Makaranga and writer for the SeaWorld series also on Makaranga. We're talking about, uh, well, marine protection goals. We're talking about how we need to conserve uh, what we have, we need to protect what we have, but also how traditional knowledge and culture also plays a part in all of that. We'll continue that discussion after this quick break. Keep it here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. On the line with me today, Dr. Jarina mohamad She's a biocultural conservationist at University of Malaysia, Trangganu. And Wong Tsu Lin, the co-founder of Makaranga and writer for the SeaWorld series, uh, also on Makaranga. And that is uh, what we are uh, basing our conversation on today. So uh, SeaWorld is, of course, a series that uh, Makaranga have been working on many, many ways of uh, covering the climate crisis, traditional fisheries knowledge, uh, protected areas. Uh, and in two particular articles that we're focusing on today. Uh, one of them is called One Thousand and One Ways to Protect the Ocean. I think that's a bit uh, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, but the second one, of course, is called uh, Grandfather's Stories Can Save Our Seas. So we're talking about sustainable and traditional culture and traditional knowledge to protect our seas. So just going back to what uh, Sulin was talking about before the break. Yeah, so that's the project, Dr. Jarina, that you're working on with the uh, Ma Mary uh, community over in Pulau Kerry. You want to talk to us a little bit about that?
0: Okay, um Suleen mentioned that uh DUF this is a project that I'm actually doing with the Department of Fisheries in Malaysia, uh because they have a unit that actually oversees uh conservation of resources. Uh and uh, so I'm really, really um I couldn't say no to them when they approached me. This is my second community actually. I started off last year with the Jakuns in Kuala Lumpur, And uh because we were they were they were trying because this is a problem in Malaysia as well, because our the way not only we are federalists. We, we run on federalism, but we also are very, our our departments are quite, how do I say, compartmentalised and they uh, they work within their act uh, that actually created them and whatnot. So jurisdiction is very important for them. And But what I like about DOF when they approach me is the fact that they are actually trying, they are basically having a broader interpretation of what they can do as a fisheries, uh, as an agency that actually tries to conserve because this is the thing it's not about uh, it's not about uh, how much fish are we catching anymore it's about how much fish are we able to continuously uh, produce uh, how do we remain productive how do we protect our natural ecosystem because whether we like it or not malaysia is still dependent mostly on marine capture fishing uh capture fishery rather than agriculture right so we have to make sure that the the ecosystems that actually produce them remains remains uh, healthy and so they started to look at yeah what can we learn from communities especially indigenous communities and this is so novel in Malaysia right and for fisher department to do is to me it's really really amazing um, and of course we started with first of all if you look at a lot of the texts I, I said, I, submitted a paper recently about that. Uh, are not associated with fishery so much, uh, especially if not coastal fishery. There have been some mention, uh, of fishery, of their fishery in the freshwater the lakes, you know, that, um, in, in, in Pahang, pit swamp especially, but just as a part in passing. But because they're still considered more, uh, agrarian at best. So, uh, again, meaning farming, uh, uh, you know, uh, Sweden and most of them are actually more into uh, other kind of like, but I still found it's true. There is now a coastal community that have actually uh, transited from freshwater. They used to be dependent mostly on freshwater fishery, but because of the speed swarm have completely, you know, reduced into less than half now, they have had to adapt and they've moved to the coastal area. And i interesting uh findings there uh, uh for example this amazing um they have this author uh, eco they, they created a device out of their knowledge of uh of making uh, tr- uh fish tracks to deter uh authors without harming them oh. but that's another story for another day <laughs> uh, so <laughs> So yes, I'm now raising my, the, my hand. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so the Mahmari is a, the, the, it's a continuation of that project. So now, because I told them, if you want to work with coastal community, fishery, uh, indigenous people, ha, you have to work with either Mahmari or the Seleta or the Kuala who are known to be coastal. Right? So that's why they say, okay, let's do Mahmari next. So that's mm-hmm. where I am now. That's where I was very happy that Swinning was willing to come with me. where we're basically trying to understand because they've been here and it is so, it is so strongly part of their community because actually mamari is not how they call themselves because mamari in their language means orang orang hutan eh, jungle people. Okay. and that's how people used to refer to them but actually when you ask who they are they're actually a uh, basisi. ma besisi, which means people with scales, mm, mm. With scales you know because okay. they are coastal that's how strong it is and and you know they they're very famous now people know them internationally even for the hari moyang where they actually go to the sea and make offering to the sea gods and whatnot so so to, to basically the gods uh, the spirit of the sea and you know, was very strong so who best to teach us about how to preserve this very productive by the way uh the coastline of that area which uh you know uh uh pulau the klang that is i was so so shocked even in the, on the day i first went i found so much diversity in the in the in the resources that you know i said that, no wonder, because they keep telling me there's trawlers coming in. The trawlers won't come in if it, if it wasn't worth their, their trouble. Time, but yeah. yes, it is. It is. They had prawns. They have they have all sorts of fish, big, small. And there's also even this um, threatening. I mean, I find it a bit threatening the fishy, fishery for the for the cocker species. You just want the bladder, you know, the mouth. Oh, yes, yes. Um, so, but what is important for us and Su Ling when she came is to see how can we learn from their way of using the sea, and what actually helped them to decide this is right or wrong? Because ideally, if we could, can uh, we would like uh, from our project, we would like to showcase them as a potential for ICCA, which is Indigenous Community Conservation Area, would we'll be the first in, Mal- in Peninsula Malaysia at least, because we have such things like in tagal and whatnot. It's not; it's such a thing where communities use their way. To protect areas, and yeah, are, well, how by, by using it sustainably, they are also protecting the biodiversity. So, and we've learned so much. Uh, I mean, I'm just halfway in it, and I am just, I it's the same story, of course. Like I said, uh, external factors and whatnot, but uh, the fundamentals remain the same. Uh, the fact that, and I recently just because I recruited them, because uh, I believe in participatory research, even is. You know, it's funny, even in communities, indigenous communities, children might not know the ecosystem as well as their as their parents yeah. because they are so detached now. They have to go to school. They don't spend their day swimming in the river. They don't, you know, they don't learn every day from nature. They learn from school and half day is gone. And their father is already gone at sea, so mm-hmm. they don't learn. So now by using a community member to actually collect data I'm actually allowing, it's quite cute, because sometimes the father would ask, because he's shy, he would let the child hold the fish. Because I, what I do, uh, I ask my research assistant to do is that you have to take the photo of the fish, you have to take the photo of the fisher who did it, as well as uh, the gear that is used. So sometimes they allow their children to hold the fish. And then uh, after they've captured the uh, the, uh, the fish photo, they have to put it on a board that is publicly shared. So children will go and see, because the idea is that if, you, if there's some your father or somebody in your family catch a fish that is not on the board, tell us because we'll pay you ten we get for it. A <laughs> okay. So but it, it creates like a you know, like a community sharing as well. Because then you inform, because it's so necessary. We take for granted that children, indigenous children, still have the knowledge of their parents, but no. you so, mentioned that just now, the erosion of knowledge. Erosion of knowledge happens every day. But it's not just uh but and I I would like to also say that. Not everything that is known uh, traditionally is valid today because things change and the ecosystem in our environment has changed so tremendously fast in the last few years. You know, the rivers has changed. I mean, like they have remained the same for eons. Suddenly, in, tw- in ten years or fifteen years, uh, uh, species have disappeared completely. So, so this has not been cannot be captured traditionally because it's too fast. So, you have to update that. This is where updating is important, where science, where we actually have more, better ways to capture information, can merge with what we know. Because the traditional knowledge is based on past observations accumulated over time. How do we merge this to be able to know how do we deal with this? And how can we improve things that are debated? Me, do you want to say something? Yeah, yeah. I
2: was I was going to say I, what I found interesting just in in those very few conversations I had with the two fishermen that you that you work with, right? And Lanusa, who is uh, uh, older and and very very articulate, actually was uh, well. First of all, he was he was lamenting about this. Generation Z always with their IT, okay. uh, you know, not interested. They don't even know what a cockle is. They don't know what you know a tangiri is anymore. You know the, the younger Orang Asli children. So he was lamenting that, you know, but but also uh, basically they, they are adapting. So you know, like like you, I'm also I was also very careful about not romanticising their knowledge and what they knew and why aren't you keeping up with this old knowledge anymore? And it is about how they have actually been adapting, uh, either because they've been forced to, uh, basically. Basically because of climate change impacts or because of big development going around and them actually losing their ocean uh, fishing grounds as well. So mm. it's not only on land that Orang Asli are losing their traditional lands in the ocean. They're actually losing their traditional fishing grounds as well. Um, but also they, they 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 also want to adopt. You know, basically Lanuza told me if they had the money, you know, they would actually get GPS systems because it's just faster. Rather than and they don't look at the moon anymore as the as their forefathers did. They use the Chinese lunar calendar uh, because it's all there it's and it's there, actually yeah. a useful tool. And it's but it is still like we know from our forefathers, you have to look at the moon. But now there is this new tool, or rather this tool that we can use, which is just flipping the calendars, and we will know this will guide us. Mm.
1: Okay, so it's a mix of both, Then that's what they're saying that they want as well. Uh, And they also have, uh, I mean, I remember reading through the articles, they also, you know, express how things have been changing, uh, why there is such a loss, uh, you know, how the catch has also changed. You want to just tell us a little bit about that, Sudan?
2: Yeah, well basically uh, Jarina mentioned these trawlers that are coming in they call them Pukat Harimau yeah. uh, that's not their official name but uh, they're predatory basically because these trawlers come in and uh, they, they, they just swoop up everything there is and they leave nothing not even not even for other animals in the ocean mm. what more the fishes that come in you know uh, the other big threat of course is unfortunately uh, it's good for a country uh, economically it's actually quite well run it's called West Ports and, and handles the the, the, the whole sort of central peninsula Malaysia uh, trading and you know containers and all that sort of thing. So they've been forced to actually um, react to that. When you have tiny boats going out and being loomed over by these giant container ships, uh it's actually dangerous as well yeah. for them, you know. Uh, so they've they've had to adapt.
1: Okay, and and with those fish stocks uh, shockingly low, that's how uh, you know it was described in the article, right? How does traditional knowledge uh, help to manage and maintain the seas' ecosystems and related food systems?
0: So, first of all, I'm not. Uh, I have friends who actually look at. Uh, they're actually looking at more at Ketam because I think when you cut when you talk about who's taking more out, you know what is actually being taken out. I think you have to look at the commercial fishery because artisanal fishery they take so significantly less. And then, uh, so if you want to know um, what is potentially being over harvested, so my colleague, Dr. Uh, Sia, is actually working in Kulaketam, uh uh collecting data and also looking at the diversity. But in terms of uh, the marmori when you talk to them, um, of course there are, there are certain fish that, for example, uh, this is reality everywhere, particularly in Malaysia, fish that used to not have any value now has. So in a, in a sense, it's good for them because they can almost sell everything. Mm-hmm. The last time you have to, you only sell the kambong, the tenggiri, the, and, and even bawal, you don't sell really small bawal because you know, nobody's going to buy them. But now, basically, if you catch something and it's fresh, you it will sell. Mm-hmm. So in a way, in, if you talk about just economic gains, I mean, maybe they might be making more now financially from the situation. Because we're just what we call uh, fishing down the food chain, right?
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, But uh, when you talk to them, uh, so this is also another thing that we have to understand. Uh, Indigenous communities, I think it's been reported, they are, are, how do I say, they really, their resilience is actually through adaptation. They just, they go with the flow. They're non, they, they don't, for them, because for them, this is very interesting. I, I, this is not only in Malaysia, but also when I was in Papua, it was the same thing. They see that they you don't know, even in Papua. I met an indigenous community. That's a, a guy who said he was my teacher. He was teaching me about the bottom there, he was saying, he said, "Oh, so is this land your? He said, "No, land belongs to no one. It belongs to God." So it's the same thing that indigenous community thing because you know, for them, you know how how they, these are things that be that are beyond them. You, know, so you just basically cope. You just make do, make do, make do. You just do. Uh, for example adapt adapt. So uh of course it's harder for them to catch probably in the past. So I I for me I wouldn't want to say that they're making less money. Fishing is harder because there's less it's less abundant, I guess. However, it doesn't mean that they um that they are earning less. But the problem is we have to remember as well that they used to depend so much less on uh on cash in- income. Okay. They used to have you have cash, you can buy certain things that you might not need, but it's just uh, a luxury, right? But now you need money you, because they stopped the community. In, most people would not imagine that on, uh, actually on the island, they used to even plant paddy. They have paddy huma uh, up to 2005, according to one literature that I found. They were still planting paddy and they stopped because it's just not comfortable. There's too much pollution from the, you know, all plantation around and everything. So they stopped. So now how do they eat? How do they get rice? They have to buy. They can't plant because most of the areas, you know, the, some of the rivers are cut off. So, so they now depend on cash. So maybe if you look at about, if you look at how much, how the dependence, they are more dependent on the market. Even though they have more money, it doesn't mm-hmm. make their life easier mm-hmm. because they have to spend most of it to just have what the ne- best basic necessities. Instead of in the past, they have what they need. But money is just a bonus that they can buy to, to use to buy some treats. Now you have your handphones, you need to pay for the uh for the for the airtime, you know, for the for the connection. Um you have your astro that you have to pay for. Uh you electricity as well. I think I'm not sure for the community maybe this uh sponsored, but that's the thing, you are dependent on cash. So so you might have more, but actually you have less. Okay.
2: Well, I was, I was just trying to scroll through to look up some statistics that I found that I didn't quite uh, manage to put into my article. And basically, according to government statistics, uh, the the amount of edible fish produced uh, actually has dropped from uh, to, from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one. Right. So, uh, in twenty twenty, we produced one point seven nine million metric tons of edible fish. Uh, and then that dropped down to 1.75 million uh, mm-hmm. metric tons in 2021. However, the value has gone up. So okay. yes, fish is more expensive, exactly like what Joanna says, Right, the value of the fish actually has gone up overall. So this is for commercial fisheries as well as for uh, uh, small scale fishers like the marmarine. Okay.
1: So, you know, we're just running out of time, student. but, you know, based on, you know, all the articles that you have uh, that you've been producing. Right. Um, you know, a lot of it, I think, also comes to uh, talking about how the government also has a role to play and organizations as well uh, in protecting the ocean. Uh, we need some uh, policies. We need some regulations that promote conservation. Right. I mean, you, again, you spoke to many experts. You know, what were some of the things that came through uh, that you'd like to share with us?
2: I think one of the things that experts have been calling for would be uh, larger areas of protected areas. I, I think actually Malaysian uh, Malaysia at federal as well as state level actually have been working very hard. They're trying to protect as many areas as possible. For example, in uh, Johor and in, in, in Malacca uh, last year, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, marine parks uh, actually gazetted 13 new marine parks which yeah. i think people have not even heard about yeah. and that's that's quite a large number uh, in at the same time uh, the sarawak state government is actually looking at gazetting quite a large area all along its coast you know uh so that's that's again uh, a good thing uh, they're actually uh, talking to local communities as well for fpic you know for free prior informed consent so that the local the small local artisanal fishers don't get caught up by the fact that these are protected areas and uh one thing to keep in mind is in terms of you call it a protected area, there's always a a, a big uh, sort of, what do you call it, uh, it you know it goes from highly protected, which means that you can't nobody can touch it, nobody can have activities there, and then you you go to like multi-use zones, and that's still a protected area, but it's different levels of protection. Yeah, so so it will be interesting to see what's what the Sarawakian type of marine protected area uh, or marine park or whatever they call it, you know, uh, is going to look like. But I think they will be allowing small-scale fisheries as well. Um, so so that's one thing is to have more areas and areas that are linked. Instead of having been you know, being separate, and I think one of the big things on the east coast of uh, uh, Peninsula Malaysia is that you have very very disparate parks. And whereas what you kind of need to do, some of the researchers are saying, you've got to link all of them because of the flow of lava and all the rest of it. Um, and then of course, you know, this federal state thing. Um, everybody would like more cooperation. They would like people to work together, uh, for sure. Um, and and the other thing I think that came out at the end of it is. Um, uh, states have to have buy-in. So you can have federal policies that are very strong uh, and uh, apparently the, the federal government, and I think we've seen it in other ways as well, perhaps not so much in marine, but in other ways as well, federal is actually pushing priorities in terms of marine conservation um, and, and, and states just have to buy in a lot more.
1: Okay. And, and Dr. Jerina, if I can just ask you, I mean, w- one other thing that, you know, all the articles sort of emphasise is that everyone basically has a role to play in protecting our oceans and seas. Uh, any any thoughts you'd like to share uh, uh, on, on that point?
0: Okay, I think the first, most important thing I think we have to basically acknowledge is the fact that people who are on site knows way better than we do. So the first person you ask is not the minister, is not the or not the scientists, you ask the community first. And uh, and I'm happy to hear, even uh, Mr. Kevin, you, you mentioned that because I remember when I was doing my master's in Redang, that was one of the things that I highlighted the fact that the fishermen until today still telling me how they were con when Marine Park was, uh, was created in Redang because they said when they came to talk to us, they never told us that it would be a Nordic zone. Because mm. I think Mr. Kevin, uh, as he recognized, he said that actually. Artisanal fishery does not impact pigs. But because we, were, we are so top-down top, top down at that time, I mean, we just wanted it done in 1990s. That's when we started the Parks, right? So they didn't want to have, like, special... They didn't, I mean, it was too complicated, I guess. It would be too much work or too long. They just basically blanket no-take zone for two nautical months. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, three nautical miles But that created animosity. Until today, I think we talked to fishermen how they think, they feel that they've been robbed. They've been there for generations. They've been, this is their home. This is their sea. How can you tell me not to? I'm a fisher and I don't damage. I, I take care. Because, like, simple. They say, oh, it's going to, because my, they see that if I if I fish dead, the is going to die because I'm going to throw my anchor. He said, I'm, I'm not stupid. My anchor costs me so much. To make, because it's made of iron. No, I'm not going to throw it in the sea and lose it. I will make sure that I will only park where there's no, absolutely no coral. Because coral will just cut my, my rope off. They know. Because they, they they want to survive, you know. So these are the things for me. First of all, ask the, the locals. Ask the people who's there for longer, much longer than you have. Ask them first. And then build it up. From there, then go to this next level, next level. And try to be... As I say, we have to scientists this is what I work with every day. I say, tell my scientist friends, we have to start telling ourselves there's no knowledge transfer. There's only knowledge sharing. We are only sharing what we know, and with hope that they also will be willing to share their knowledge. You know, so so that's where we have to start in Malaysia. We have to basically bring open to all because the technical people, the agencies, they know better about formalities but procedures because we know it's complicated you know the legislation has made things not easy for them we understand that but how do we start so i think first of all start local start locally if you have an area and uh we have the central forest pine we should also have that something similar to that uh in the sea for our coral spawning area you know that that bridge basically right um so i think that's that's how first of all it's not about, okay, another thing I want to stress. Also think about uh, stressing quality instead of quantity. Sometimes you just take large areas, but is it really going to matter if we can't protect the most critical ones, mm-hmm. key ecosystems? So of course, I if you can have both, it'd be ideal, but start with key ecosystems. For example, fish, when you talk about fish, once the keystone species are gone, then you basically, in a couple of years, everything else will go as well. So, 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 that's what we have to look at. More understanding about what goes underwater, so that we can then, and then always remember that even if it's underwater people who are just at the surface of the water, the fishermen, for example, know a lot about that. So, we learn from them as well. Then we go to the, to the beach, to the shore, and then to Putrajaya, and make it happen.
1: <laughs> to put your I love it. Okay. Well, there's so much I think that we need to unpack. But, uh, you know, folks do go and read those articles at makaranga.org. Uh, just search for the hashtag SeaWorld uh, on makaranga.org. And uh, Sulin, I do know that tonight there's going to be a webinar as well in relation to this. Yeah.
2: Yeah, um, it's for Macaranta supporters. So it's, you know, just sign up, support us. A much more casual talk about the issues that we covered more in depth at this time. But uh, tonight you will be um, a more casual chat with a, a marine biologist. Okay,
1: excellent. So uh, just become a Makaranga supporter. All the information is at makaranga.org. Ladies, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. I was thank be- you for having us. Absolute pleasure. I was speaking to Dr. Jarina Mohamad-Jani, a biocultural conservationist at University of Malaysia, Trangganu, and Wong Sulin Lin, the co-founder of Makaranga and writer for the Seaworld series on Makaranga. If you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash earth. You can also find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture.